Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Hello, I'm Andy McLenaghan. Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of Let's Talk Social Work of 2021. In this episode, my guests and I will be exploring the issue of domestic abuse and the social work response to support victims and survivors of abuse, as well as the role social workers play in working with perpetrators of domestic abuse. I'm really pleased to be joined by Sarah McMillan, professional officer with the Scottish Association of Social Workers, Rachel Barnes, who is a social worker with Safer Families Edinburgh, and Dr. Marcia Scott, Chief Executive of Scottish Women's Aid. Sarah, Rachel, Marcia, how are you all doing? Very well, thank you. Well rested and kind of happy to be back. Great. Yeah, I'm the same. Quiet, quiet Christmas and New Year, but back to the back to the keyboard, back to the workstation and home. Yeah, me too. Um, it's good to be back, getting back into work, but it's, it's difficult to make that adjustment. Okay, no, and that me too. That was that was Sarah at the end and Marcia at the start, um, just so everybody knows the voices. It was a weird Christmas, wasn't it? It was pretty pretty unusual. Yep, a new year was even stranger. I'd have to say it was very quiet. New year, New Year's pretty low key in Scotland normally, isn't that though? No, very low key, very low key. So yeah, no change, no change there. Um, So as I said in the introduction, today we're discussing domestic abuse and this is an issue that affects many, many lives and it's not restricted to any section of society or any family type. To set a bit of context before we we really get into the discussion, Sarah, it it would be really helpful if you could begin by providing providing a bit of context and explain what domestic abuse is. Yep, well, domestic abuse is a a pattern of persistent controlling behaviour from one person to another between two people who are in a close relationship. It's not a one-off incident. It's a sustained pattern where one person um, monitors and controls the behaviour and the routines of someone else. And I've read different, there's different typologies of violence in relation to domestic abuse. I've come across definitions, intimate terrorism, violent resistance, situational couple violence. Would you be able to speak to those? What, what intimate terrorism, what, what's that? So intimate terrorism is also commonly known as coercive control. And um, Michael P. Johnson is, is an author who sets out three typologies. And intimate terrorism is... As I said earlier, the pattern of control in behaviour where one person exerts control over another, it's similar to being in a hostage situation. And although the the adult victim is is being controlled by the perpetrator, the children are also living in that hostage situation. And it's not an expression of frustration or anger. It's something that's done intentionally to control somebody else. And the other two typologies that Michael Johnson refers to are violent resistance, which is when often when someone who has been the victim of domestic abuse might act to retaliate 
against the, the abuse that's been perpetrated towards often her. And sometimes it's the result of years and years of living with abuse. And sometimes can lead to then the the victim or the survivor being labelled as the perpetrator, when in actual fact it's a retaliation against what they've been living with. And the third term is situational couple violence, which is is not what we would call domestic abuse. It's more like a, a difficult relationship where there's a lot of arguing and fighting, but it's equal on both sides. It's not about one person having control over the other person. And it's really important as social workers when we're working with domestic abuse to be clear about what domestic abuse is because if we're not clear about what the situation is, if it really is coercive control or if it's situational couple violence, if we're not clear then we're not going to be clear about the right intervention. And some interventions are not suitable in the same situation. So, for example, anger management is totally inappropriate if you're talking about coercive control and intimate terrorism, whereas, whereas it might be appropriate in a case where there's situational couple violence. And which is the most common uh, form of abuse that social workers will be encountering? Social workers encounter um, coercive control on a daily basis, I would say, whether it's the um, presenting reason for contact with social work or not, it, it, it can be there regardless of what area of social work you work in. Um, as social workers, I know we often do also come across situational couple violence, and I know from experience that that is labelled often as domestic abuse, but it's not what the law in Scotland sees as domestic abuse and it's not what a lot of the programmes that we use in Scotland are designed to address. So we have to be really careful. The starting point, I think, for every social worker is to understand what the different types of conflict in a relationship are and that domestic abuse and coercive control isn't a conflict, it's a power and control situation. Marcia, did you want to come in on that point? Yeah, um, I, I think... There's a lot of confusion around all of this, in part because our systems are confused and don't align. So actually, in Scotland, situational couple violence is also domestic abuse under the the way the police define domestic abuse. And um, because we have a new course of control law that was passed in 2018, now what you'll hear are people referring to a, a Section 1 offence, um, which will be under the course and control part of the law. But the, the um, prior to our having a course of control law, uh, domestic abuse offenses would be prosecuted under other offenses because we didn't have a specific offense. And that has been rolled up into our existing um, uh, police uh, uh, framework. So... The difficulty for social workers, and I'm, I really feel sympathetic about this because it's actually the same difficulty that we have in women's aid, is that the reality of domestic abuse, as we define it, is exactly what you laid out, Sarah. You know, it's not about a fight that's caused by a myriad of different things. It's about an ongoing pattern of behavior. Um, and... Uh, and what we call restricting space for action. So, you know, essentially constricting children's and women's choices. Um, the difficulty is that our criminal and civil justice systems do not define it exactly the same way. 
And um, so we're all constantly dancing back and forth, trying to make sure that what our service response um, or, you know, social work's response or even police response is appropriate to what they're saying, given the sort of blurry areas, I think, um, that you've just described. So uh, I think we, we need to be aware that, so the, where, the place I see this as a biggest problem sometimes is in the courts. Um, so, you know, sheriffs will say frequently, oh, well, this is a minor event that's come to our attention. Um, and if it's situational couple violence, it might be, although situational couple violence can deliver homicides occasionally. So we, it's really important that we not, uh, you know, um, minimize it. But uh, the the reality is, I think, and I'm t I know I'm speaking to the choir here a bit. The reality is, a situational couple violence may just appear to be that when it's actually coercive of control and domestic abuse. I mean, that'll be very common experience for all of us. I think but also the failure to understand how power and the dynamics of power operate through all of these things in a really gendered way um, makes it really difficult, uh, I think, for, the, for the, both the police and for those of us who are trying to, to protect and support um, victims. Uh, quite complicated. And Rachel? Um, I, I mean, I, I take on board what Marcia says, and I think we are very fortunate in Scotland to have the Caledonian programme, um, which is a screening tool that can begin to be used at the court, at the point of um, a man being charged. So at that point of him being charged with domestic, and that could be, you know, anything. It could be situational. It could be... Um, these men can be put forward to be screened um, for the Caledonian programme, which is an intensive um, behaviour change programme. And what we do within the assessment stage is begin to um, find out if this is a pattern. So we might be working with a man where this might be the first conviction, um, but actually what the man then does is to, begins to tell us about a pattern of behaviour and we can recommend to the courts that he then does the programme. We can equally screen men out and say, um, having, you know, had that communication with the victim or our um, support services for the courts, um, we are, this is a one-off, this looks like something that escalated, it's not, there isn't a pattern of behaviour here. So I, I think in Scotland, um, certainly social workers' role, because it's social workers that will complete these reports, um, we are being we're at being asked to be much more attuned to what is going on in situations when we are presented with an offence. So rather than our reports reflecting an offence, the assessments that go alongside that now take into account patterns of behaviour rather than it being offence-based. I'm really keen to explore the Caledonian model um, in more detail. And I also want to talk about the, the legislative context. But before we do, I'm, I'm really keen still to look a bit more into coercive control. And um, can I get a couple of examples of what coercive control can look like in a relationship? Um, just, just so that listeners are clear, it's not, it doesn't actually need to have any element of physical violence. Sure, it doesn't. Coercive control can be entirely psychological manipulation and emotional abuse. Is, is that right? I, I was just going to say what's, one of the one of the questions um, around, and we we quite often give input to um, social workers in Edinburgh, 
Um, and quite often an easier question to ask somebody is to ask them what they stop doing as a result of the relationship. Um, so what you're actually doing is you're getting a picture of, um, you know, maybe a woman that says, I stopped wearing short skirts, I stopped visiting my family, I stopped having friends at the house. Because then if you ask a woman what's happening, she often doesn't, she's not even aware of the fact that she's often made all these changes to almost placate the, the man. So what we start to ask is what's, what have you stopped doing since you've been in this relationship? Yeah, I think I think that that's great, Rachel. It really reminds me of uh, so the 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 typology that Sarah laid out is Michael Johnson's work, um, uh, and Michael Johnson uh, uh, very much is a, a good parallel, I think, with um, Evan Stark, who's a bit more well known, but who wrote the book Coercive Control, both literally and and figuratively wrote the book on coercive control. Um, and course of control, as, as Sarah mentioned, sort of maps over onto intimate terrorism quite well. Um, but um, I, I think it's, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, it, actually this was in Edinburgh, um, when Evan was speaking at an event we did um, with uh, uh, a number of organizations around, the, and it was really focused on because there were a lot of social workers in the audience, I remember, it was focused on um, the impact of uh, course of control on children. And um, uh, he was, uh, Evan was talking about uh, the, the complexity of mothering in the context of domestic abuse and course of control. What Evan said made the whole audience sort of stop and you could just hear this kind of sucking in of breath because it, it had such an emotional impact for this audience that was, of course, 80 or 90 percent women. And what he said was, he said, the real tragedy or one of the real tragedies of domestic abuse and coercive control is not what men do to women. It's what men keep women from doing for themselves. And I thought it, that that was such a resonant thing to say or, you know, that about the the constraints of coercive control that it's really important for us to understand. And this is why we use the analogy of space for action so much, because it's, you know, what coercive control looks like is entirely individual. It's so, it's so tailored. That's the, you know, one of the really difficult and tricky insidious things is that it's so tailored to the circumstances of a particular woman and her relationship. Um, so if she's a mother, it looks different than if she's not a mother. You know, if she's if she's a carer, it looks different than if she's being cared for. You know, if she goes if she does paid work, it looks different than if she's at home all the time. It is absolutely tailored to control and constrain her choices. And um, so when people says, well, you know, I don't think that's domestic abuse. I think we all have to say, well, actually, let's let's take a really close look and Rachel I thought that was brilliant at what she can't do so yeah and what are the motivating factors behind a perpetrator pursuing coercive control you know why would a man do that to his partner <laughs> we've all been asking that for decades um I, th- I, I, I mean I think I think the reality is he can um and he chooses to um, and, and there is a deep-rooted bit around having needs met. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, for a lot of the men that we work with, they, their beliefs and attitudes um, 
to how they want their life to be means that the people around them need to conform to them getting the life that they want. And if they don't, they're not happy. Um, I know we are, we're doing a lot more work with men around um, uh, mental health and um, thinking about ACEs, thinking about um, backgrounds. And, and I think it is that bit about um, actually giving men a narrative to help them understand why they are the person that they are and why they're making the choices. Um, you know, a lot of the men we work with do come, do have um, very difficult um, childhoods. However, as an adult, they can begin to choose to do something different. So it's about getting men to understand that domestic abuse is a choice to, to a certain degree. They're choosing to do what they do because it works for them. Yeah, let me just add to that. I think a lot of us have been asking that question both both practically and theoretically for all of our professional lives um, uh, and personal lives for some of us, I suppose. And I, th- you know, I think the the answer is in part what Rachel says because they can. You know, we have an entire system that's been set up for centuries that have entitled men to the services of children and women in their families and. Um, and that entitlement is a very literal permission giving. But I, I think when we, when we think more broadly about prevention of domestic abuse and other forms of violence against women, we need to think about how the system operates um, and what drives, uh, what drives individuals in the system to make certain choices when others don't, you know, when, when many men choose not to. And uh, we do know, we don't have an awful lot of good research on this, which is telling in itself, I think. But we do know that um, from the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey, that uh, those men who engage in forms of violence against women um, tend to be more likely to hold very traditional gender attitudes about the roles of men and women in in um, life in in you know in society and in family life and I, and I and the, and those men have a higher tolerance for violence against women um, in our in our survey and that really kind of confirms what we all have been saying for a long time which is that the elements of women's inequality so the fact that we're more likely to be poor that we're less likely to be safe in our personal lives, that we're less likely to have the power and be at the table when decisions are made that affect our lives. All of those are the things that create this system of entitlement. And then when you throw in these really traditional conservative with a small C, and sometimes a big C, um, uh, attitudes about women's roles, then that is the recipe for entitlement for abuse, I think. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of course of control, it's not necessarily that um, all the controlling behaviours are there at the very beginning of the relationship. This is something which can be um, a kind of creeping pattern. Is that correct? I think that's a good a, a good assumption at the beginning. Um, although, as I said, they you know there's no one prototype for for how to be an abuser. I suppose Rachel, you probably can speak to that more than I can. But obviously, you know, I, you know, I think most. Most women are not going to go into a relationship where there's a list of rules for them. You know, on the first date, here are the rules about the acceptable behaviors. Whereas when you look at, you know, the vast majority of cases of coercive control that we see, whether they're 
written or unwritten, explicit or implicit, the rules are, there are many rules in women's lives by the time they've been living with course of control and even more in children's lives. So I think it's, um, uh, it, it is absolutely accurate to reflect that the, the rules don't get laid down at the beginning. And forgive me if this is a stereotype, but it's, it's, it's the, the idea that the guy can be the kind of the really charming boyfriend at the start. Loads of presence, loads of attention. Don't go out with your friends. Stay with me. I love you so much. Turning up when the girl's on a night out, that sort of thing. Those sorts of behaviors at the start could be perceived as a really attentive boyfriend. They could be a warning sign. Is, is that, would that be correct? I mean, I think I, I, I would, it would be unfair to say that an attentive boyfriend was potentially going to be an abusive boyfriend. Um, I think, however, it is the bit about, um, and, and it's taken the point that Marcia made around there being rules. So it's a bit about when you, I always remember working way back in my career where I, we were talking about um, stages of um, conditioning in a prisoner of war camp and, and how they actually um, got prisoners to comply. Um, and and it, coercive control was coming out at that point, but it wasn't fully understood. Um, and we were talking through the bit about, um, you know, somebody being very attentive and then you maybe not wanting them to be attentive, so always picking you up from a night out, and then you, it's fine, I'll get the bus. And there being a, a, a reaction to that, rather than, you know, a partner saying, that's fine, get the bus, a partner saying, well, no, actually, I'm coming to get you. So it's it's actually when that attentiveness becomes a, 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 almost an order, yes, and and it becomes a rule, um, and and again, you know, thinking about what Marcia said, so the woman then stops saying, "I'll get the bus home," and just allows a partner to pick her up all the time. Okay, when actually she just wants to get a bus back with her friends. So the, the, it's that the subtle shift if a woman then begins to say that I don't want it like this. And, and then that continuing. And we've gone for a good stretch of this conversation without talking about COVID, which has actually been quite refreshing, but it is the reality. We're back into another really serious lockdown. I know it's different across the UK, but we're all essentially living very abnormal lives again. In terms of how COVID has impacted rates of domestic abuse um, across the UK, has there been a spike in, in cases? Marcia, I'm just thinking of your services. Have you seen more demand for women's aid services? Um, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because it gives me a chance to say that one of the things that I'm most eager to get out uh, on the airwaves, I suppose, uh, around COVID, which is uh, one of the things that just drove us crazy during the beginning of the first lockdown was uh, an almost media um, uh you know, moral panic about domestic abuse. And believe me, I welcome panics about domestic abuse because it's very, very difficult to get um, our societies to, t to understand the scale of domestic abuse. So one in four women experiencing it, one in, in four men um, perpetrating it, one in five children living with it. I mean, this is, this is no small, just another problem. However, what we were seeing... Uh, you know, at, during the first lockdown were, oh my God, domestic abuse is going through the roof because of COVID. And, and we kept saying, well, you know, first of all, the data collection on it was way lagging behind the, you know, the moral panic. So everybody was jumping to a lot of conclusions there. But also, 
you know, what was then, we were, you know, we've all worked so hard to try and get people to understand that the drink doesn't cause domestic abuse. You know, unemployment doesn't cause domestic abuse. Um, football doesn't cause domestic abuse. Christmas doesn't cause domestic abuse. And all of a sudden, the media was defaulting to, but COVID causes domestic abuse. Well, and as Rachel pointed out, domestic abuse is a choice and it's not something that COVID caused. And our what we projected turned out to be absolutely true when the data finally was, was uh, available to take a look at, which was that where where domestic abuse existed, COVID, COVID provided additional tools for perpetrators, very significant and scary tools that seemed to be from the way police and the government were messaging about lockdown at the time to be state-sanctioned. So in other words, not only are you being controlled and told that you, you know, where you can go and where you can't go, but the state has now said that um, it's weighing in on controlling that. So what we saw was, um, uh, you know, women who are already experiencing domestic abuse um, having fewer fewer choices, even fewer choices that they would have had prior to that. Also, the lack of information about the what their options were. So we had a woman calling our helpline, for instance, who said, you know, she that um, the fact that he was home twenty four seven. Um, and then she was home 24-7 and they had children and had just pushed her to the point where she was ready to leave to go and to want to go live with her mother who lived in England, actually. Um, uh, but she was really worried, rightfully so, that if she got on the train, took her child and got on the train, that that the police would tell her you're not allowed to travel and, mm. and bring her home. So... So I think, you know, my one of our biggest things is COVID is another tool for perpetrators. This, the way the system responds to domestic abuse under lockdown is is as important as the the actual effects of it, I think. And and um, so I would say I'm somewhat hopeful that 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 extra tool for abuse in this lockdown has been somewhat mediated by people understanding, at least in Scotland, because I'm not sure the messaging has been equally um, clear in uh, the other countries of the UK. Um, but certainly I know the First Minister even mentioned domestic abuse when she announced the second lockdown um, here in Scotland, was that domestic abuse is very firmly and almost at the top of the list in the category of exceptional circumstances, which means that women may leave their homes and the police need to need to and will respond as robustly or even more so than before. So just to be clear, Marcia, what you're saying is these situational factors, lockdown, time spent with family at Christmas, football at the weekend and and so on, these can be factors which exacerbate abuse where it's already present in a relationship. But it would be wrong to suggest these factors are what's causing the abuse. Is that is that right? I think I'd be uncomfortable with exacerbate. I think okay. what I would say is they they provide more opportunities for per, for perpetrators to control, and whether that they happen yeah. to get used or not is will be up to the individual circumstances. 
um, is there, and again, just correct me if I'm wrong, but is there any, is there anything to be said about um, the loss of control that people have found themselves? You know, everyone has lost control of their lives to a certain extent. Have there been situations where individuals that weren't abusive, um, having lost control under lockdown, have sought to regain that control through abusive behaviour on others, Rachel? I think realistically, um, and again, it's, it's starting to think about the typologies and how you're working with families. Um, an abusive man is an abusive man, and generally these men will have a history. Um, you know, there will be, you know, dependent on age, they will have a pattern of behaviour that stems through a lot of relationships. Um, and I think it's fair to say um, anybody in a relationship, um, being around each other 24-7, homeschooling, will create tensions in the family home, that doesn't create abusive behaviour. So what you might see is an increase in people just, you know, that, that, that are bickering escalating in a, in a relationship, but it doesn't create domestic abuse. Domestic abuse is something very separate. And this is a good example of situational couple violence, because I think what what Sarah's, uh, what Rachel's describing is exactly, and it may well be serious, it's not necessarily just bickering, but it doesn't make it a course of control or domestic abuse. And Marcia, you had mentioned Christmas and you also mentioned football. Was there, so was there an increase in demand for your services over Christmas? Um, there never is. Okay. Okay. Because I think that's, <laughs> that's a, a, I think that's that, a myth that needs to be dispelled. Yeah. It, that in football in Scotland. So the, the two big things are that, you know, that a, that a, a Ranger Celtic match causes domestic abuse or and or that um, the Christmas does in part because I have to say um, there's been there has been an awful lot of noise about those two things by the by the police over over the last few decades. But what the data re what the data reflects is an increase in policing around those events or um, awareness by police that domestic abuse might be an issue rather than that that the prevalence of domestic abuse as measured by incidents, which we know is not a very good way of thinking about domestic abuse. So there isn't an, um, so what we might be looking at is police calls. So no, our helpline never has more calls over Christmas. It never has in the five years that we've run it. When we talk to the folks who run helplines in Northern Ireland and in Wales and in England, um, they tell us the same things. The, 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 what we do find, and this isn't an anecdotal observation, is that we've certainly heard from some women that they decide over Christmas that they're going to leave, in part because of the, the, the I think, the challenges of trying to provide a family, a happy family holiday, um, especially for children, and the, and the realization that this family's never going to be that happy family. Just uh, while we're dispelling myths, I want to just touch on this other one. So I was looking at the, the Scottish government's stats on domestic abuse, and it says that recorded incidents of domestic abuse were higher on a Saturday or Sunday than any other day of the week. Is there any reason for that? And I don't, we said it's not football. The thing with football as well is football doesn't all happen on a Saturday anymore. That is something that happened in decades past. It's definitely not the reality now. But have you any insight as to why Saturday and Sunday, and if this is recorded incidents, so it's not necessarily all incidents, but those that are recorded why they would why they would peak on the weekend? The first thing I have to say is that those are those are police calls, okay? Those are those are official police stats about police calls, and they and people often use those as a proxy for prevalence of domestic abuse, and that is a huge mistake because first of all, domestic abuse and course of control is not about an incident; it's about a twenty four seven 
experience. So, and secondly, um, whether there's a police call or not is is very, it really depends on the situation. It may be a neighbor that's calling. It may be a family member that's calling. You know, there may be a whole variety of things that are, it may be situational couple violence. Do you know what I mean? At that moment, when there's a police call recorded and a domestic abuse marker put, we, you know, the the reality of connecting that with the general level of prevalence of domestic abuse on Saturday versus Wednesday, you know, it's just not, it, again, I think it reflects the fact that police will be policing more rigorous, rigorously over the weekend because of all of the, the crime patterns that we see um, rather than any necessarily any changes in the in the behaviors of perpetrators. I, I think as well there's a bit about, um, I, I mean, if you think about COVID and, and the increase in opportunity to be abusive, again, weekends, if people live their week, they're generally, children will be at school, um, a, a woman might be out working, at the weekends, again, there might be that um, more of an opportunity and equally, um, you know, we know by research that it takes women a long time and um, before they actually pick up the phone and phone the police to say this has happened. And I am aware we are talking a lot about men and women and, and, and that is, um, you know, I work with abusive men, Marsha works with female victims. Um, but, you know, the research again says that and Marsha will know a lot more around the gender stuff. But I think there is something about certainly um, for a lot of the women um, victims that we work with, it's when incidences start to take place when the children are there. Um, so again, um, you know, children can be a motivator for a woman to say, I've had enough, actually my, my child's witnessing this, experiencing this, whereas she might be putting up the abuse through the week when the children are at school or, or not present. So again, th there's a lot more goes on behind that Saturday phone call than it just somebody picking up the phone on a Saturday. And the gendered nature of domestic abuse is something we've kind of touched on, but I definitely want to explore in some detail now. The, the reason, I mean, I think it's surprising that anybody would challenge um, domestic abuse as, as being a, a gendered issue and one that is essentially perpetrated by men against women. The crime stats suggest it is a gendered issue perpetrated by men against women. But I have seen, you know, in, in, in recent years, especially on social media, Commentary from men's groups, men's rights groups that are suggesting, you know, men also experience domestic abuse, so women must also be bad. That's the sort of the, the argument in a nutshell. It seems a rather aggressive one. It seems to be a rather um, intentional misreading of the statistics. So I'm, I'm just looking at, um, we, I have stats here for, because um, uh, obviously because of the different jurisdictions, we have different reporting and different recording. The ONS statistics for England and Wales, they highlight that uh, in the year ending March 2020, the victim of domestic abuse was female in 74% of domestic abuse related crimes. And in relation to domestic abuse figures for Northern Ireland, um, figures recorded by the Police Service of Northern Ireland in 1920, sorry, the year 2019, 2020, 69% of domestic abuse victims were female and 30% were male. That points to a gendered problem. Marcia, you're shaking your head. Yeah, just because I, and I think this this comes back really circles us back to the conversation at the beginning um, about the blurry areas about what's defined as um, uh, a domestic abuse uh, offense, um, and so what, and I think 
We have a bit of good news in Scotland about this, which is under our new domestic abuse law, which um, uh, at the moment I think is uh, still considered the world's gold standard. Um, had to slip that in. Congratulations. Uh, um, uh, that uh, if you look at coercive control, then we know that that, that is an extremely gendered um, uh, phenomenon. And as we were getting ready, so the year between um, passage of the law in 2018 and implementation in 2019, there was a lot of work done to try and make sure that the implementation of this law um, was appropriately gendered. And there were these kinds of conversations about, you know, is it 70-30, is it 80-20, is it, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, uh, and so we actually did some work with the College of Policing in Wales, I mean, in England. And, um, uh, and I consulted Michael Johnson, who's my favorite um, quants expert, uh, to say, and said to them, what... Uh, if you're talking about coercive control um, uh, rather than situational couple violence and coercive control and all of these other potential things lumped in together, and, and also it's important to understand that out with Scotland, domestic abuse includes family members. It's not just between partners and ex-partners. Um, so, but if you were looking at coercive control between partners and ex-partners, um, what how many of the perpetrators uh, um, in your mind, you know, what percentage of the overall um, number of, per of perpetrators would be women? Because one of our biggest concerns was, and we know that the, um, the literature is really absolutely clear that when countries put in changes in law around arrest policy, um, what we see are what we tend to see really consistently is uh, spikes in mistaken arrests of women as perpetrators when they're actually victims. So a victim calls the police, the police go, they do a risk assessment, they do some kind of uh, a new new process that they've been um, uh, tasked with doing as a result of this change in law or policy. And, and women who are seeking help get arrested as um, perpetrators. And those numbers were already too high in Scotland. They were about 15%, between 13 and 15% over the previous five years before the new law, um, uh, uh, before we even had a coercive control law. And we were really concerned that we were going we were gonna to see a spike in that. So we did a fair amount of work with Michael Johnson and with the College of Policing, and we said, and what they said was, in terms of coercive, coercive control, the number of women perpetrators, I mean, I remember the, the researcher from the College of Policing saying he'd read thousands of cases as part of his research, and he, had, um, he, he probably couldn't, couldn't fill up all the fingers on one hand with the number of women perpetrators, so under five. Michael Johnson said definitely under 5%. Okay, under 5%. So this is what we're talking about. So not only is it gendered, but it is very gendered. So what we said is if you have a female perpetrator, you need to look really, really carefully at, uh, you know, what kinds of information was gathered around that arrest. Um, but also if you're, and this was the biggest thing, 
if the numbers of arrests for perpetrators of domestic abuse under Section 1 in the law are over 5%, you probably have a significant problem with miscarriages of justice. And I'm really happy to say the first year of data from the Crown Office indicates that their prosecutions under Section 1 of the Scottish law were around 5%. So, and the police were really um, mindful that we were going to be asking for this data from them from the beginning, and I think they have been um, uh, watching it also carefully. So I think that what, what we've kind of bottomed out here is, you know, there's this whole big confusing area about what's coercive control, what's, what's situational couple violence. Some, most of the data seems to indicate that situational couple violence is, is symmetrical. So, you know, equal numbers of women and men um, engage in it. The consequences are always more difficult for women because of all of a number of issues. But the reality is that the, the prevalence seems to be about symmetrical. But in the context of coercive control, it, it is so far from symmetrical and it is so clear that it is. That it really needs to go beyond, however, I think this question of gender, beyond the, oh, well, more women are victims and more men are perpetrators to why is it gendered? That's the critical piece that needs to be you know, understood. Um, and, and I really hope that we can move the conversation on with government officials from, well, it's gendered and because of this, but it's gendered because women are poorer, because children have no very little access to their human rights, because traditionally for centuries, women and children were property in our societies and in our families. And we ha it's that that we have to disrupt if we want to disrupt domestic abuse. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but you can tell this is a passion for me. So, Marcia, you mentioned that Scotland has the gold standard in terms of domestic abuse legislation, but are there other countries in the world where rates of domestic abuse are lower than they are in Scotland um, that uh, we could be looking to um, as an example to follow? I'm thinking about the cultural factors. I'm not talking about the legislation. I'm thinking about, you know, we're talking about cultural factors, the fact that women and children for years have been treated, considered, were, were actually property, and, and, and more, more recently um, individuals will still consider them property. Are there other countries that have more progressive social norms where that has had an impact in terms of domestic abuse rates? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. the answer is short is no. So absolutely, you know, certainly Scotland and the rest of the UK is not in the in the top five of countries on the gender equality index that the UN uses. Um, uh, but the reality is that we are still so far, I think all of our cultures are so far from being gender equal that, um, you know, that we haven't we haven't yet walked into the country where where, you know, walked into the into the um the life uh, for any women and children where there's enough equality that that would that that would then begin to trigger the the diminishment of domestic abuse. Um, I, I think what there is research and I can't remember I can't remember where it came from. It might might have actually been um, Michael Johnston again, but they they looked at rates of domestic abuse and what they have found is countries where there is. A, a, a bit more equality between men and women, the rates of domestic abuse are lower. So countries where um, women have absolutely no rights, and, and the, but 
I think it's double-edged because what happens in the countries where women have no rights is that men have got more justification to do it. So I, I think there's something about if a society justifies it more, then it is, it's going to be more normalised. So you won't hear from victims. Children won't know that what they're experiencing is wrong. It will be viewed as it, it, it becomes a society normal. So I, I think it's very difficult to say... Um, that any country is better than us or worse than us. I think there is, it, it's very much linked into, um, as Marsha was saying, it's that bit about equality and and actually how we're viewed as men and women in society and sometimes the part that children play in it. And again, thinking about children's rights, um, you know, children in the UK have got helplines that they can pick up phones and say, something doesn't feel right in my family, I need help, I'm scared of this. In other countries... They, they don't even recognise that that might be an issue, therefore we don't have the figures. So it, it's very, very different, difficult to get a full sense of it. And it does come down again, I think, to measuring. How, how are these things measured? So, so if, you, if you pick, so we all, I think, the, would think that the gold standard of uh, gender equality would be in the Scandinavian countries. And, well, that's what I was, yeah, that's yeah. What I was thinking. And, that's what I was trying to get at. Um, but I'll also tell you that the systems for measuring domestic abuse in those countries will be much more sensitive. You know, so it is very difficult now to, to compare, for instance, say, Sweden with, a, a, with countries where... Um, uh, you know, domestic abuse is 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 barely illegal. Do you know what I mean? Bec- so they won't be got. So it'll look like those countries has less domestic have less domestic abuse than in Sweden. I th- you know I think it is um, it is absolutely an apples and oranges conversation in in most across most countries. But I do think that uh, Rachel's absolutely right. The you know the more opportunities there are for oppression, the more oppression there's likely to be. So. Um, but I do think that none of us have gotten to the point. I mean, if I, you know, if you go, if you think back to the scale that I was talking about at the beginning, and in a in a country where we would we would like to think that we had reduced the opportunities for oppression, um, uh, then then I think we're begin, we're talking about really really tiny differences, you know. And while we're talking about apples and oranges, Marcia, I would like to talk about the situation across the UK. So the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act came into force in April 2019. But the 2015 Serious Crime Act, that was the first piece of legislation that created anywhere in the UK an offence of controlling or coercive behaviour in an intimate relationship or a family relationship. And that legislation applies in England and Wales. How does that definition compare to the Scottish definition? Um, again, it's a uh, who's covered is different. So in in Scotland, we have for very and this is you know our organizations have for decades fought really hard to protect the partners and ex partners element of our law. So in England and Wales, it covers other family members, um, uh, which then allows you to throw child abuse in there. To, you know, um, uh, abuse from a child from a adult child to an to a um, adult child sounds funny because it's wrong. So adult, you know, son or daughter to mostly son to, uh, to one of the parents. So it kind of blurs over into elder abuse there. So the, there's a lot of apples and oranges there. But I think the more interesting difference um, between that law and um, the serious crime law and ours is that uh, 
well, I suppose, first of all, theirs was developed in six weeks and ours took three years. But if you look at the the language in the Scottish bill, um, it is filled with references that come almost directly from survivors' mouths. So, uh, so, for instance, when some of the language of the Scottish bill was tested with survivors, they said, well, you know what, that, that this needs to to reflect the 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 fact uh, that the impact or the effect of the of this abuse is t- is to make me dependent is to is to reduce my freedom and my autonomy and you'll see that language through you'll see language about pets because that's what children told us over and over about the the um the use of pets to control them and and to threaten them and and we thought it was just a, a minor issue, but then children over and over said, and then the bill team put it in the bill in three different places. So, um, uh, so there's there's real there's a huge difference between describing in a number of paragraphs course of control and behavior and creating a piece of legislation that reflects the sort of much more complex and range of experiences that children and women have as, as victims. The other thing is that under the serious crime law, you had to have some kind of serious threat of, of violence um, or, or coercion. Um, and the, that, that word serious is really problematic, especially in courts that don't consider controlling a woman's freedom or, beha- mm. or behavior serious. They're only really attuned to physical violence. So um, what we know is that there are, I think in the first year of that law, there were like 12 prosecutions or something like that. And and that's in the size of England and Wales. In the first year of our law, we had over a thousand. Uh, um, so I think it's really important to understand that there, it, it's really not fair to compare the two. They're really really different and they're and they're being implemented in really different settings. And I know that in Northern Ireland we have the domestic abuse bill and that's nearing its uh, its completion but it's been held up near the final stages due to a fairly technical issue around legal aid. The other point I'm just really keen to touch on very quickly um, the domestic abuse protection bill which is currently um, going through the Scottish Parliament that would introduce um, domestic abuse protection notices and domestic abuse protection orders in Scotland we have a similar proposal in Northern Ireland that's been consulted on and in England and Wales domestic violence protection orders and domestic violence protection notices have been in place since 2014 will they be a useful tool Marcia? Absolutely we um, we actually lobbied for them to be included in the original domestic abuse bill. Um, uh, And the government at the time, probably rightfully so, although I'm still a bit reluctant to say they were right and we were wrong, um, uh, felt that the issues involved needed to be consulted on separately and then because they hadn't included them in the original bill. So, but they did commit to doing a piece of work, uh, you know, and uh, consulting on one in a year after they passed the domestic abuse bill and bless them, they did. Uh, it took a bit of um, campaigning on our part to actually get it in the parliamentary schedule this time. Hence, everybody's scrambling right before Christmas. But um, uh there's two reasons why this is really critically important, I think. The first, um, uh, and what was really compelling to us, is that domestic abuse is the single biggest reason that women find themselves homeless and children find themselves homeless 
in Scotland. And part of the reason for that was because there was no legislative protection that allowed uh, social landlords to to um, uh, evict perpetrators of abuse and to allow children and women who are um, experiencing domestic abuse to stay in their homes. And so um, increasingly over the last decade, what we were seeing was that women and children, in order to be um, uh, protected from domestic abuse, uh, had had to make themselves homeless. Uh, they had to move. They had to move often multiple times, um, multiple traumas, and often didn't find themselves much safer, I have to say. Um, and we have research on that that was in Fife, actually. Um, so uh, this, this law, once it gets passed, um, will do two things. It, it'll have a, it provides an emergency response to, um, uh, to bar perpetrators or accused perpetrators from uh, home, from the children's schools, from a variety of areas. Um, but it also puts in a legislative ability for social landlords to remove from a tenancy, uh, from a joint tenancy, an, an abuser and allow a woman and, and children, if there are any, um, to stay in that home. So we think it's, it's a really critical um, uh, gap that exists in our existing protect, set of protections uh, that we would like to, that, we, that, would, that desperately needs to be filled. Thanks, Marcia. And Sarah, if I just bring this back then to the social work perspective, um, last year, SASWA developed its practice guide on domestic abuse and child welfare. Um, it's in a really, really good document. I, I relied on it a lot when I was preparing for this conversation. But that guide was obviously produced because there was a need for a better understanding among social workers of how they can best support victims and survivors uh, and their children. What are some of the common misconceptions that the guidance is aiming to address? So the guidance which we produced in partnership with Scottish Women's Aid and with um, some of the social workers in Rachel's team who work with perpetrators, the guide came on the back of what started out as a one-off event in Edinburgh, I think three years ago, together with Scottish Women's Aid to look at the social work role in domestic abuse. And that event was so... um, positively received and oversubscribed that we ended up having another six events around Scotland, full day events, looking at what social workers' role is when there's domestic abuse, both in terms of working with the survivor and working with the perpetrator, to look at really how can we achieve practice that's safe and that's effective and that's fair. Um, and one of the things that there's a term used within um, when discussing social work, particularly with survivors, and it's failure to protect. And there's been a lot of research about this. There's quite a lot written about it. It's something that a lot of social workers and other people will tell you that they've seen in practice is that when there's a coercive control situation, the pressure has often been put on the survivor, who's usually the female parent, to achieve safety for herself and her children. So the message is is either you achieve safety for your children, these are the things we're going to do to help you to do that, but it's down to you to do that. And if by the time we come back and sit around this review table again, that hasn't been achieved, 
we might have to consider taking your children away to make them safe. Um, and that's an approach that isn't effective or safe or that works in favour of the children or the survivor. Um, so what what we were trying to do with these events was to support social workers to recognise that in, re in order to really achieve safety for children and for women, that we need to partner with the women survivor, that it's not it's nothing that she's done that has caused that's causing the concerns about risk and harm. It's what the perpetrator's doing. So the perpetrator has to be held to account. We have to recognise that it's his actions, that it's what he's doing that's causing the concern for the children. And the best person to support the children is the is the mother. And if we can partner with her and really work out what's going on here and recognise what she does, um, despite the abuse that she's experiencing, recognising the strengths that are there and the things that we might think are routine aspects of parenting, but she's carrying them out despite living under power and control. Um, so if we can do that, then we can move away from this, this failure to protect, which isn't really protecting anyone or helping anyone. So it's looking at it's a more we wanted to to try and put across a more strength based way of working and a way that alongside that holds the perpetrator to account for what are ultimately his parenting choices. If he's choosing to behave in an abusive way around his children, then that's his choice as a parent and he needs to be and held to account for that. Sorry. And the, the other thing is often um, the men the man or the perpetrator is missing in a lot of the child protection processes that, you know, often the woman's there around the table. She's the one that we're meeting with. She's the one we're talking to. And he's not really often been a part of that. So it's about um, bringing him into the room and making his behaviour the focus. And even if he's not engaging, it's documenting that he's not engaging and the efforts that have been made to engage with him. I was going to ask Rachel, um, the, that issue of domestic abuse as a parenting choice, that's central to the Caledonian model, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's interesting because we're using language and if people are familiar with um, David Mandel and Safe and Together, um, I, I, I think what, um, and, and I've been a social worker for a long time, history as a children and family social worker, and I have written reports now that I go cringe. Um but I think what, what David Mandel was able to do, um, and I think we all knew it, so, that, you know, the people that were... We, we talk about a domestic abuse lens, and once you've got the domestic abuse lens, you you will look at every situation with that domestic abuse lens on. Um, and that is about understanding, you know, the typologies, understanding control, understanding fear, understanding hope, um, you know, between... Um, victims and, and perpetrators. But I mean, I, th I think for us safe and together, um, and I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm aware we're talking about a lot of these people and I've actually found it useful, go on and search these things, you know, go on and have a look, be inquisitive, look up Michael Johnston, there's really good podcast, Evan Stark, Safe and Together, has got a really good website. Um, and, and I guess coming back to the, the bit is that, um, when we designed our programme, um, well, I'm saying we, it wasn't me. Um, I came in when it was semi-designed. Um, 
they they did think about children and I, and I think um you know criminal justice historically when I first started in social work wouldn't even ask people if they were parents never mind you know it, it just wasn't it was a crime and it was very very separate um and I think in general now there is that more of an emphasis on the parenting side of it and I know certainly the Caledonian um program has modules that has sessions designed to bring in the, the child into the room um, so to get men to talk about um, being a father and, and actually what we find is for a lot of men being a father is a, a good motivator so they might not necessarily want to talk about all their bad behaviour but they will talk about them, maybe the dad that they want to be um, and again you start to work with them around well, what gets in the way of you being that dad you know, if you're saying this is what you want it, what do you think the reality is when your children are experiencing the police getting called because you've been abusive or you're shouting and screaming, banging doors? What do you think that does for the children? Um, so it, it gives men an opportunity to start to speak about um, being a dad, um, but also the impact of domestic abuse. Um, and, and what we generally find um, is a, a, a huge challenge, particularly for children and family social workers, is... The, the abusive men that we work with find it hard to even talk about them being abusive to an adult. They find it even more difficult to talk about being abusive towards their children. So social work can quite often come in and men defences go up. So we have to think about the barriers that get in the road of us working with the men um, that are actually creating the problem. And, 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 and I think that was the bit in social work that we weren't very good at doing before. And Rachel, until that's pointed out to the perpetrator, is there not generally an awareness that the kids are actually being impacted? I, I think there always will be an awareness. I, I don't think you can beat your worst behaviour and not know. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about, um, I, I always remember, like, thinking about my childhood and domestic abuse and perpetrator. We, we talk about perpetrators. Um, and they were always viewed as these big, scary men. They're not like that 24-7. Um, so these men worked very, very hard to present themselves with a clear image. So, you know, it's that bit about... I'd, I work with a lot of perpetrators who, if they're alone in the room with their child, um, can have a lovely time with the child. That doesn't make them a good parent, and I and I think for social workers, it's about recognizing that you know many of the men that I work with do have very good parenting skills, but the fact that they're abusing the the mother of their children, they're still being abusive towards their children, and I think that that's the area where, um, social workers, where where and I I like David Mandel. He talks again about the gender bit. And, and he gave, gives a really good example of um, watching a man walking across a, a car park with a pram, a toddler, um, bags of shopping, and he actually overheard two, two women saying, oh, look at that guy, what a, what a catch. And actually the fact that if that was a woman doing it, we, we might not even necessarily in our society make any comment about it. So it's a bit about the, he talks yes. about um, that gender imbalance expectation on women as mothers but equally where's the expectation on men and he and he starts to ask questions you know in a room full of professionals if that your child was ill and the school needed to phone a parent who would they phone and the likely answer would be they would phone the mother and that's taking domestic abuse out of it you know that's not even thinking about domestic abuse put domestic abuse in there where there's that control and fear 
and you've got women micromanaging all aspects of life and trying to manage under really, really difficult situations. So it it is. It, 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 I think it, I like Marsha with the bloody. It, it, domestic abuse is bloody. And until we actually begin to work with victims to find out what their reality is, work with children to find out their reality and work with men to find out their reality, can we start working with these groups to hopefully reduce it? Yeah, and this may be an unanswerable question, but how do we as a society essentially lift expectations of what men as parents um, should be doing? You know, how do we increase expectations of, of the role of the father? Marcia, go for it. How much time have you got? Uh, <laughs> you know, it always circles back to challenging um, uh, the indicators of women's inequality. Um, uh, and... Uh, so what does that look like? That looks like reducing the pay gap. That looks like addressing um, uh, uh, occupational segregation so that the people who uh, have the powerful jobs um, uh, and get paid a lot of money are not, you know, 90% men. Um, the, it, you know, it looks like all of that, but it also, you know, starts at very, what seem mundane ways. Um, uh, mandatory uh, paternal leave, um, uh, uh, and and again we can look at the Scandinavian countries actually for some of their policies around um, uh, parenting, but we have got to address the the burden of unpaid work that women um, are taking. And COVID has shined such a bright light on this. Um, the the massive amount of unpaid work. Um, that women do. And I think there was an interesting international study that said something along the lines of, of the fact that at this current rate that men are picking up um, household duties uh, at uh, something like, you know, a, a minute, a, a minute more a week or something like that. And COVID has probably messed with all of this. But essentially what we're seeing is that we, you know, un until the the work gets distributed more equally in families, and, and that's emotional work as well as physical work, um, uh, it, it is gonna be very difficult to have a, um, a level playing field for, for mothers and fathers in our world. But it is some of the, stru the structural things have got to go along. We can't, this, people like to talk about the culture. Well, culture reflects system, you know, in my world. And, and until um, men have to take a parenting break when there's a child in the family that has the same impact on their career trajectory, I mean, at the moment, if a woman takes a break to have a child, her, her you know, lifetime earnings will never recover. If men take a career break because they want to get a degree in something or they want to do that, their, their you know, career trajectory recovers in six months. So, you know, I think it, it, it's those systematic sanctions that we put on women um, for participating in public life and the, and the privileges that, that we have to challenge 
um, and also, and then the culture will come along. Because at the moment, our corporate culture is that men aren't allowed to take parental leave um, without being seen as not being, you know, committed to the to the corporation or whatever. So we need to do all of those things. But I have to throw in one more thing that I really wanted to say because Rachel and Sarah both inspired me. It was so exciting to hear all of the safe and together language and all of that. And I think we do have to give David Mandel credit because he's the one that first coined that phrase that domestic abuse is a parenting choice. But the other thing, um, and this is one of the reasons that we argued so to make children co-victims in the domestic abuse law, which we didn't accomplish, I'm afraid, um, is that there is there are increasingly huge volumes of evidence that when a man is coercively controlling a woman in a family, he is coercively controlling the children. And this is not about what did they see, were they present, did they, did they hear, you know, did the fact that she's not allowed to visit her parents mean they didn't have access to their grandparents. It's also about that perpetrator's behavior directed at his children. And we often don't see that, and the, our systems are not geared to illuminate it in children's experiences of domestic abuse, but we have to be mindful that it is almost always there if there are those similar behaviors of women. Um, just going back to the children, but um, Luke Hart, um, I heard him speak at a Safe and Together um, conference. He, he and his brother and... Uh, experienced um, and went through the tragedy of his father um, killing his mum and sister. Um, and as a result, they've, um, um, they speak to professionals, they um, speak about coercive control. This was a very controlling man, I think, um, quite limited, if, I, if I'm correct me, but he was quite limited in the physicality that he needed to use. It was much more um, controlling behaviour to the point that the children weren't even um, aware that that's what they were experiencing. The first time he was physically um, violent was when he murdered the, the, his his ex partner and yeah, his daughter. Yeah, so I knew that there was there wasn't any, and I and I think for me, it, what listening to him speaking, and and I think it is that bit about you know we we focused a lot on the work that we're doing with perpetrators, on the work that we're doing um with adult victims, but it, there is something around educating children, and that needs to come. You know, we've talked about society changes. That needs to come from nurseries, from schools, from media, from you know, the the language that we use around children, you know, it's a far bigger shift that we need to make to um, raise women and boys, you know, girls and boys in a, in a much fairer way. And and you just need to watch a lot of the programmes coming out around... Uh, one that always stuck in my mind was, um, and I'll be really quick, they did a simple test of hitting a hammer to a toy. You know, one of these things that it shoots up and rings a bell. And all the girls said that they would score lower. These were about seven-year-olds. All the girls thought they would score lower and all the boys thought they would score higher. But actually, at physicality at that age, they're the same. So the girls were really surprised that they'd hit it and rung the bell. And the boys were really disappointed that some of the girls beat them. And, and I think there's that mentality that we need to be shifting. In Peppa Pig, it's only Mummy Pig who's able to hit the bell when she hits the thing with the hammer. We saw that the other day. 
I just wanted to say, and this is a bit of a plug, um, we've talked about the safe and together model and we haven't really we haven't really gone into what the model is and it's a child-centred, survivor-strength-focused, perpetrator-pattern-based model and it really encapsulates a lot of the, the points I made earlier about how social workers should be practising in domestic abuse and I was really fortunate last year to be able to go and do the four-day core training in Safe and Together and I'm now a certified trainer having done more training after that. And BASWA across the UK is offering social workers the chance to do this training. It's called blended training, so some of it's online and some of it's will be on Zoom with me starting on the 4th of February. So if you go to the BASWA website, you can find out more about that and how to book um, a place on the course. So I just wanted to get that little plug in there. And and let me just say, yes, that's so good. That is so good. And also Scottish Women's Aid has also become, done the trainer, training for trainers and we'll, we'll be offering um, Safe and Together training also in Scotland. Um, so... Uh, you know, it, it's just so exciting to begin to hear and see changes when people actually implement a safe and together approach. I think, you know, we are still very, very far from having it be done consistently across Scotland, but um, we are taking some really important baby steps, I think. And equally, um, from the perpetrator work side of it, a lot of us are also um, safe and together trained and we have certified trainers. Um, so again, it's that all areas need to be working together with this. And it can fit really well into the existing systems that are there. It's about changing the way that we think and the way that we approach domestic abuse and how we understand the impact. Sarah, Marcia, Rachel, thank you so much for, for your time. I find this a really, really fascinating conversation. There's a huge amount that listeners are going to take from this and we can link some of those resources as well in the, in the show notes so people can follow up. That'd be great. Um, and Andy, actually, I can't believe I didn't say this because <laughs> I tell my staff all the time, but we, we really need to remind people that our helpline is available 24-7. Um, and that we've developed, as a result of COVID, um, a specialized web chat for children and young people living with domestic abuse. So um, if I, if can we make sure that when you link to resources that you link to that? Absolutely. Sarah, Marsha, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. Thanks, Andy and Rachel and Marsha. It's been really fascinating to hear both of you talk today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Great way to start my, my 2021. <laughs>